Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So tonight we're going to be medievalists and uh, ah, talk yes. about <laughs> Lenten restrictions on food and also um, eels, which are something that people ate during Lent and yes. used as payment and presumably wore to the ball because they make pretty scarves. I don't know. Eels were big. They're very cute. So, yes, that's true. In a certain way. <laughs> in a certain way. I don't know. My my three-year-old will look at anything that's small and say, oh, it's so little. So yes. if you get baby eels, I think he'd be into them. Also, there are eel puns I came across recently on Twitter um, <laughs> that are mostly based around moray eels. Oh, boy. Yes. So, like, you know, that's a moray. Yes, yeah. wasn't there a New York Times headline? <laughs> oh, maybe. I mean, probably. That would also so be the, hilarious. <laughs> the New York Times, last in June, uh, ran an article with the actual headline, When an eel climbs a ramp to eat squid from a clamp, that's a moray. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, I just found a random Twitter thread <laughs> with, like, no names on it. Someone had just photoed it and put it on a thing, you know. So I apologize that this isn't credited, but we can look it up, I'm sure. Um, when an eel has a maw with a pharyngeal jaw, that's a moray. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, actually, this is important. The jaw fact is important. <laughs> um, because eels and lampreys are different. Lampreys were also very favored in the Middle Ages. Uh, very delicious. But um, our... Not eels. They are a, a non-bony fish. Eels do have bones. So the fringal jaw, for mm. example. <laughs> um, okay. Yes, when the jaws open wide and there's more jaws inside, that's a moray. <laughs> <laughs> um, once again, they're fringal jaw. So they have their yeah. jaws that we know, right? When you see a, a moray eel open its mouth, you mm -hmm. see the jaws. But there's like a second pair of jaws inside so that when it swallows the fish and bites down, the second pair like... In its throat, basically, pulls it in. Doesn't the, the alien in. In, in Alien have pharyngeal jaws like that? Yes, and it's. I think it's actually based on eels. Certainly things like that, but I think that's sort of okay. the point. Yeah. yeah. Spoiler alert, guys. Sorry. Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you should, I guess. is the Right. The movie um, is like almost 40, so. Yeah. Uh, it's over 40. It's is it? The original Alien is older than I am, so. Oh, goodness. I think it's 79. Okay. I might be wrong, because it is older than I am by at least a little bit, maybe a year, and uh, so I'm not quite sure how old it is. Another thing we could look up, I guess. Um, yeah, the internet says 1979. There you go. Ah, so I was right. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so let's see. Um, when it sulks in a reef and has two sets of teeth, that's a moray. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love it, because it's so good if you replace... If you think of a moray as spelled not a moray, parentheses eel, but if you think of it as spelled 
amore, love. It's just <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> yes. Um, the last one is my favorite. I do want to warn people it is dark. And I didn't write these, of course. I found these on the internet. But um, when an eel bites your thigh and you bleed out and die, that's amore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, eel jokes. That's a good one. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> anyway. Um, yes. So eels, I think our point is here, are still very popular. And we still eat them, actually, right? But we mm -hmm. don't think of them... I, I mean... From what I can tell, we don't necessarily think of them as a Western European dish. Right? I honestly don't think of them as... Well, okay, so that's not true. You can get eel at a Japanese restaurant. Like, you yes. can get eel in sushi. And yep. it's a cooked roll. And yes. I don't know. I I haven't tried it. I feel like I've been told that eel is relatively mild-tasting. It is. Eel is delicious. Okay. I, I mean, I'm going to stand on this ground. Eel are delicious. Okay. <laughs> eel are? I think so. Eel are, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, eel are delicious. And um, a singular eel is also delicious. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, of course they used to be eaten a ton. The reason they're not thought of anymore as a Western dish is mostly because they were over... I mean, they're not technically a scaly fish, but we are going to talk about how they counted as fish, not as meat. And there were only really two categories in the Middle Ages, so um, there you are. Um, yeah, they were basically overfished, is what mm -hmm. happened. So um, that is why they kind of disappeared. Um, but there are still definitely places that where they continue to exist, or they've been reintroduced. And they're trying to reintroduce more all the time. Um but you know, there are certainly um places in the West that are that still you can find them. Particularly sort of um north you know, like sort of Netherlands, Dutch and Scandinavian areas where you might find them and smoke them or cure them or salt them and that's what you would have done then, and that's what, mm -hmm. something you can also do now. Um But yeah, they're very, very tasty. <laughs> um so yes. Uh Eels, here we are. <laughs> eels are, should be like amore. They are very delicious. Um, and one should love them. They're also very neat, obviously, as animals. And some of them are endangered, and therefore you should not eat those, obviously. Yes. Um, I'm going to say, when I was a kid, we used to go to the Shed Aquarium in yes. Chicago. And I was always a big fan of the moray eels just because yeah. they had blue eyes. And somebody was like, look, those eels have blue eyes just like you. And that just totally worked on me as a kid. I was like, yes, those are amazing. And so every yep. time we went, I would visit them. Yay. They are, though. They're super cool. They look, they do look sort of really intelligent. Um, probably because they they are actually fairly intelligent. They're great hunters. Um, or can be. I mean, depending on the type of yeah. eel we're talking about, obviously. Um but yeah, the Shed Aquarium, to this day, I mean, I follow them on Facebook and stuff, and they frequently post things about eels. Um, their eels are very smart. Yeah. And uh, there's, um, you know, many, many different kinds, obviously. <laughs> so um, the Mori is probably one of the more famous because of how big it is. Um, yeah, they do we seem, are... they're quite large. Yes. And kind of, like, glowing green. 
Yes. I mean, they're very eye-catching. Yes, they're very, very striking. Yeah. Um, But there are many, many types of eels, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Moray are just very, yeah, they're very noticeable and very large. And they can live a very long time. Um, You know, several decades, at least, I think. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Absolutely. So they're, you know, they're prominent <laughs> in in our eel knowledge, I think is the point. Um, but there are, of course, many other types of eels mm-hmm. um, that exist. Um, and, of course, there are marine eels, mores, but there are also eels that go in and out of sort of marine and freshwater more like salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are probably the types of eels that we're really talking about in medieval Europe. Um, and a lot of times, you know, around like the Middle Ages in general, um, there are plenty of people who around the world in the Middle Ages who do fish at sea. So, for example, some of the other things that do count as fish um, are porpoises, um, which were caught okay. and eaten. Obviously, to be able to afford a porpoise, you had to be pretty high up the, I would like to say, right. food chain, I mean, but like, not actually. I feel like those <laughs> things are the same size as tuna. Like, those are huge. Yes. Yeah. So I guess I should a... say it the other way, right? Like, tuna are the same size as porpoises, but they're yes. both quite large. They're very large. Yeah. Um, and so, obviously, yes, to be able to afford a fish of that size and prized nature, right? Because you had to go out further to catch those. Um, that those were very expensive, of course, right? Um, so that would be sort of usually nobility monasteries, you know, that were usually upper class people, stuff like that. They they could potentially afford them. Um, but you know, so there were you could go out that far and catch fish, um, in strong nets usually, you know, fish Mm -hmm. were caught in nets. Um, but generally speaking, you know, the sort of everyday fishing would happen a little bit closer to shore, um, where you would get you know, pike, cod, herring. Anyway, so closer to shore and rivers is the point. <laughs> yeah, places <laughs> that you rivers. didn't, it didn't take a ton of time to get from there back to the market, probably. Yes, that as well. Um, and so, because you have to be able to keep them fresh. You know, they didn't have ice necessarily on their ships back then, or refrigerator units, or whatever it is that ships have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so you, you wanted to catch them and get them fresh. Um, and eels, this is one of the great things about eels, like salmon... Um, that they would come to you, the ones that come into freshwater would come to you, right? <laughs> you didn't have to go out at all on a sh- uh-huh. boat. Um, yeah. You could be at a river. I mean, you might still have to go out on a boat, obviously. Some rivers are large, but not the same expensive type of boat. <laughs> a much cheaper type of boat, right? And scoop them up in your nets and then carry them off. Yeah. And so the the point here, of course, of the the whole fish thing... Uh, so we might as well sort of start there, um, is this mm-hmm. idea, this started with a question that we had, um, or that was asked us, I guess, um, about why meat isn't mm-hmm. allowed during fasting days. Um, and it's worth pointing out that, of course, uh, kashrut, if you're Jewish, you can't mix meat and milk. Right. Um, but fasting means fasting. Right, that there aren't necessarily days where there are days where you don't eat in Judaism. The most famous one is Yom Kippur, but there are a lot of others. 
There is a lot of fast days if you really want to fast. Yeah. Uh, and that's true, you know, in many religions, of course. Um, but it's not necessarily days where there are, are certain things you don't eat. Um, there are a few holidays like that, obviously. Passover. Passover. Where you, like, <laughs> don't yeah. eat bread. Or anything that could remotely be considered bread, which means, you know, if you're a Sephardic, you're less... Uh, compelled to not eat things that might resemble bread, so you can eat rice. But if you're Ashkenazi, like, don't eat anything, basically. Any grain no, at all. No. <laughs> no soy, spelt, even, Which rye, is a legume. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But um, for whatever reason, uh, quinoa and potatoes are both okay. So, go figure. Yes. But there was a big thing a while ago that maybe they were going to outlaw quinoa. <laughs> I feel like that. I remember that because all of us vegetarians were like, no. Exactly. Yeah. I think that, so that got put on the back burner, I think, because there was a bit of an upcry that, like, you can't just go around, you know, come on. Yeah. (laughs) um, But the point is to avoid even the appearance of whatever. And so I guess quinoa kind of looks like barley or something. And so, but barley isn't. I don't know. But anyway. Okay, but the point is that, with some exceptions, <laughs> um, then there are other sort of things where, like, Hanukkah, you're supposed to eat things fried in oil, of which potato latkes, of course, have been the most famous, like, in the States. But um, So there are certain holidays that symbolically revolve around certain types of food. But generally speaking, for sort of a fast day, it's just about not eating. There, It's not like there are certain things you don't eat Unless it's a specific holiday, in which case, that's that's right. a little bit different. Um, but for fasting in Christianity, um, as you move into the Middle Ages, there start to be sort of specific rules. Some fast days might be, you know, fast days where you honestly do not eat. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of days where it's not that you don't eat, but you don't eat meat or... Uh, certain animal products, I guess. Is <laughs> um, and so, one has to be careful about this because certain animal products, but yeah. Oh no, like when modern Catholics talk about giving something up for Lent, is that on top of restrictions? Are the restrictions no. different? Yeah, restrictions have changed. So this is, and this is actually the thing, right? As you move into the Middle Ages which, of course, starts in, like, 500, right? And we talked some episodes yeah. ago about how Christianity, like, sort of forms itself. <laughs> mm-hmm. So once it gets kind of formed at the beginning of the Middle Ages, and you start having fast days, one of the things that starts to happen is this sense that fast days, because there are so many, and you, you can really can't, like, just not eat all the time, although certain religious figures, like saints, will do that and right. just not eat. But they are not working in the field, right? Right. Like, it is not sustainable to not eat and work in the fields. If you're right. spending your day in a cell, you know, contemplating God, you might be able to get away with it. Yes, but. exactly. So um, so what happens is, well, then it becomes more a point of that you, there are certain things you don't eat. And so meat and animal products become that thing. And we were asked the question of sort of why. There are a lot of suggestions as to why. One of them, which is where the question came from, is the suggestion that meat, because the Latin is carnis for meat, and that is related mm-hmm. to carnality, um, the idea that flesh, 
carnis flesh, right, um, was, you know, it, it was considered to sort of heat the body. It was mm-hmm. considered a rich food, right? Meat is a rich food. Everyone knows that. Sure. But then this added sort of um, sense, right? Carnus, flesh, carnality, um, that it might sort of um, enhance desire, basically. It is too <laughs> inflammatory to the passions. Yes. 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 Um, and so, and that is potentially an idea, right? Um mm-hmm. But there's also very much just the sense of this is a meat is rich, right? Meat is not something everyone can afford to have all the time. But if you are a monk or a nun who we just talked about, not a lay brother or a lay sister who's doing all the work in the fields, but a full on, you know, monk or nun, mm-hmm. um, you are probably wealthy. You, I mean, we're sort of talking like the Benedictines here, but um, you're wealthy. You probably gave a lot of money to join the convent or the monastery. Um, you can probably afford to eat meat all the time, but you probably shouldn't, right? That is not a mm-hmm. religious lifestyle. Um, and so you start to get this sense of abstinence and the extent to which abstinence becomes seen as religious. And you notice, right, monks and nuns are supposed to be celibate. Priests aren't until the year, roughly the year a thousand. But right, so celibacy is already a form of abstinence. Um, and so abstaining from meat and also like cheese or eggs and things, you know, becomes another mm-hmm. form of abstinence, basically. Okay. Um, so you start to have fast days where the point is that you, you do not eat meat, right? That it's, it's part of your absence, that you are refraining from these things as part of your religious lifestyle. Um, and it's definitely seen as sort of a form of devotion, right? Um, you get some interesting things that we talked about again a few episodes ago with the we we had a number of episodes on heretics yes i think that was very early like six seven uh five six seven maybe check it out oh we'll put a link in the notes yeah well also uh, a little more recently in the the 40s we talked about sort of proto-protestants and stuff oh yes heresies um i'm not quite sure what numbers those are gonna be yeah we'll find out um, we'll put a link but, to those two. <laughs> yes. check, the, check the notes. Uh, but I know we talked specifically about the Bogomils who sort of um, influenced the Cathars and um, the Bogomils and then somewhat followed by the Cathars believe that you don't eat anything that's the product of procreation, i.e. sex. <laughs> okay. So it's not just meat you don't eat, but milk, cheese, eggs. And the the thing is that this was a part of fasting anyway, but they go a step further and they say you don't eat it ever. You never eat this stuff. You should never eat this stuff. Um, and their conviction, their sort of reasoning uh, behind their conviction um, is maybe a little specific to them, right? Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily because it, wants makes you want to have sex (laughs) it's because sex itself is sort of a sin and so you don't eat anything that has been created by sex Mm. which is definitely not the orthodox view the orthodox view is um much more about sort of the richness of the food and the luxury of being able to eat meat and so you abstain from it right okay um 
So were they observing vegan diets then, or were they finding some sort of workaround, like, fish are produced by slime on the bottom of the sea, so that's okay, or something? Yes. Well, that's what the Kethers decide. (laughs) Oh. So they, yeah, they eat a lot of fish because they do think they're basically spontaneously generated by the water. Okay. Um, Yeah. And so fish are okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But other things are not. Um, And then the Lollards, we talked about that, Wyclifites, they reach a point um, where they don't necessarily believe in fasting at all. Mm. So they actually kind of go the other way. Yeah. So they go a different route, and they say there's no doctrinal reason for fasting. Um, You know, like Christianity as opposed to Judaism, which has like, you know, fasts are built in, Jesus comes along and sort of undoes all that. Right. There's no clear reason, like, why you would fast. Why are we fasting? Um, And so then there's some cases um, of, like, there's a trial, uh, Margaret Baxter is put on trial, I think, because someone, like, a servant or something in her household um, saw her put meat in the, I don't know, like, in the oatmeal stew or, like, the porridge or whatever. Gasp. Um, during Lent, I think, is the point. Mm. Right. So the sort of purposeful not fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, of course, brings us to <laughs> um, fasting. So um, there, if you are a monk or a nun, so if you are a religious figure or very religious, then a few times a week... Um, Certainly during Lent, you, you fast, fast in the sense of not eating meat or cheese, milk, etc. Um, so several times a week, probably like, um, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, throughout Lent. Um, eventually this kind of becomes just Fridays, particularly for lay people, right? Lay people, as you said, right, are working. You're not necessarily expected to do all of that. So it becomes eventually sort of ingrained that on Fridays, is when you do this. Um, eventually, like Vatican II, and sort of the aftermath of that, right, in the, the modern church, um, that's when you get the sort of shakeup um, that if you give up something, you know, so you can choose something else to give up during Lent, uh-huh. you don't necessarily have to give up meat. <laughs> okay, so there's all these people who are like, I'm giving up using disposable plastic or I'm giving up sugar or whatever. And then they keep on eating hamburgers. Yes. Because they, they gave their stuff up. Okay. Yes. That being said, a lot of people sort of will do both Mm -hmm. or will still not eat meat on Fridays. Um, which is actually interesting because of course, if you give up, if you aren't eating meat, you don't do it on Fridays. Mm Mm-hmm. You might not, you don't, the point wasn't necessarily that you gave it up for all of Lent, right? Originally it was a few days and eventually it becomes Fridays, Mm -hmm. at least for the laity, right? Um, But if you give up, yes, like using this disposable plastics, you do that all of Lent. Yeah. Um, And then you might also not eat meat on Fridays, but you don't have to. Yes. The point is you choose something else you're going to give up and you're actually going to do it for all of Lent. And that's the point is that that's the spirit of the, 
That's yeah. the spirit of the holiday, right? At the <laughs> same the time, it feels a little bit like the way that you somehow trick a child into eating broccoli. Like, instead of giving up meat for a few days each week, you trick somebody into giving up something for the entirety of the holiday. Right. I don't know. Well, but the point is that, you know, maybe you change your habits and you're like, you know what, I can live without disposable plastics. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I could eat less sugar or whatever it is, right? Um, and th- But that is the point, that you you do without, and maybe you'll change your habits and be healthier or better to the earth. You know, and if you don't, well, at least, like, for 40 days, you tried to make a difference. Sure. Right. Um, and so that's sort of, and that is the spirit of it, for sure, mm-hmm. right? Um and this is where we sort of get into that, because, of course, the the letter and the spirit are some of, you know, are always two different things. And um, mostly what we're right. going to talk about for this podcast today is people getting around the spirit, but sticking to the letter. <laughs> um, so, yes, the modern era has made an attempt to change that. But, of course, this is where we get things like McDonald's filet of fish Um because and every fish fry in yes. Wisconsin. Yes, every fish they fry are in Wisconsin. immensely popular. Yep. Yeah. Every restaurant has one. Yes. Yeah. And so the funny thing is, it's it became the sort of tradition nonetheless, and it remains one, because it's so mm-hmm. culturally embedded, right? Um, and so for, you know, 40 days or a month and a half, usually, you know, they start a little bit early. They sort of at, at last a little bit longer than Easter. Um this happens every year in the U.S., right? And so it is a sort of cultural... It's cultural as well now, yeah. I mean, it's always been cultural, but it, it has its own special cultural place in the U.S. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. But so the point is, um, yeah, meat, essentially, the, the thing is to give it up, right? Because um, you can afford to. Those who can't afford to... <laughs> don't necessarily have to give it up, right? If you're poor or if you're sick, um, you are not necessarily bound to these rules, but also you couldn't probably follow them. I mean, you are already not necessarily having a lot of meat, right? Certainly not so much that you can, you know, maybe enough that you could not eat it on Friday. You know, you'd eat it like two other days of the week or three other days of the week. Um, But you might not be having so much meat that you feel like you have to give it up for three days because you probably already do, right? Right. <laughs> like, um, so that's a, another sort of aspect of this, of course, is that it's a very much um, about sort of the upper classes, right? And as we move to the Middle Ages, that can even be the middle classes, right? The middle classes can afford a lot. Um, so this takes us to eels. Eels are delicious. They're beloved in England, going back as far as we can. Um, so we want to mention, let's see, the surprised eel historian on Twitter. Um, he's a, an eel historian who's surprised, <laughs> not a surprised eel, yes. who's a historian. He has made a that important story. clarification. Specific, yes. Yeah. Um, His real name is John Wyatt Greenlee. Yes, there you go. Um, and he's yes. written some articles about eels and the medieval eel economy. Yes, which is eel really economy. fantastic. Yes, yeah, the eel economy is phenomenal. And um, there is so Cornell um, has an interactive map um, 
And this is actually the Historia um, Cartarum. <laughs> so, you know, Historia Cartarum. Oh, that's so the name of the, the, the website. Yeah, this is the website. Um, and this is, you know, historical maps, essentially. Um, but they have a whole section on eel, eels. <laughs> um, and specifically, the English eel rents. And that is rents like you pay your rent. Mm-hmm. Because you could pay your rent in eels. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And so um, the University of Hull um, did a doomsday project based on the doomsday book <laughs> that William the Conqueror, who we have mentioned very recently, of course, uh, in our the end of our sort of before the Norman series, he is the beginning of the Normans in England series. Um, you know, when he took over England, as any good landlord does, he decided to have a survey made of his land, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too bad, because when I was young, I was told that some of my ancestors were mentioned in it, and it ooh. sounds very grand and kind of spooky, right? The mm-hmm the doomsday book and you're like wow what what is it and then it's it's a census yes yeah it's a giant survey of everything he felt he owned which is to say england and some chunks of wales and um yeah everything and everyone was supposed to be in it is a census right but not just of people also of stuff you know how much are you worth what do you own how much should he be taxing you, right? This sort of thing. And um, it's, you know, a treasure trove of information, of course, mm-hmm. um, because obviously, I mean, you know, he arrives in 1066, he orders this done, it's completed in 1086, which I gotta say is impressive, right? Right. <laughs> um, and... It has given us, the, I mean, it still exists, and so it has given us just this astonishing amount of data for what England was like at this time, right? As you can imagine. Um, and so, um, yeah, there's a, the University of Hull did a doomsday project where they just, like, collated all of this data and made it public so that people can use it. I mean, historians can use it without having to themselves comb through the book basically you know the manuscript okay that um, makes sense yeah um so professors palmer and slater uh, at the university of hull sort of headed up this project um and one of the big things is um eel rents <laughs> right so you could say um my property is worth x much but also i am given X number of eels every, let's say, year by these different people, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if I'm a landholder, I might say, you know, these people who, you know, probably farm on my land or something, they have to give me, you know, 40 eels every year or whatever it is. So, was this a situation where coins are kind of slow to be made or expensive and to, there might not be enough coinage in general circulation and people had to find an alternative way of... No. This is okay. more, um, you know, um, let's see. 
people just really liked eels. I don't know. Did anyone ever have a friend? I had this, right? <laughs> there's always, like, there's the friend you have who always brings, like, the sandwich you want to lunch. Okay. And you're like, um, usually you'd trade. You, cause you'd be like, well, I always get this for lunch that you want, and you always get that for lunch that I want, and we'll just trade. Um, okay. <laughs> but sometimes it might be a harder bargain, right? What if they're like, I will give you this if you'll do my math homework or whatever, right? <laughs> um, and it's, it's that sort of situation, right? It's, it's a barter, essentially, right? Right. Um, and the barter tends to be, um, X person likes eels because eels are awesome and delicious, right? I have to say, like, I would mm-hmm. do this for sushi. No question. <laughs> okay. Um, so this would still work, I think is my point. Um, Future Jesse's tenants, take note. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, right, um, you, and, you know, maybe even, this might be even a little bit different, like, you might be a tenant, but also there might be, there can be any number of reasons why you're paying rents to someone. Um, you might live by a river, or something like this, um, and have access to eels. <laughs> you might be a fisher person. Um, who knows, right? But you, um, yeah, right, you then would sort of agree, like, I will fish out all these eels, <laughs> and I will give them to this other person. Probably I get to keep some myself. But, you know, they're not going to get their own eels because they're the landholder. They need to pay someone to get their eels for them. Okay. It's easier if you sort of cut out the middleman. Instead of me paying them however many shillings and then them paying someone to get them eels, mm-hmm. they'll just, just get their eels the for me. directly. Okay. Yeah, and that's my rent. Um... There are some interesting cases of, I think there's a case of some nuns who owed eels to probably the monk or something who ran the monastery. Who knows? And um, they never sent them. So the, the, what they ended oh. up doing actually was paying money in lieu of the eels. Oh. Presumably because they had kept and eaten all the eels. <laughs> <laughs> right? So like they got, sure. the, which is sort of brilliant because then they get to keep the eels and eat them, you know, and the monk basically does have to then pay someone to get them if he wants them, mm-hmm. right? Um, but yeah, so that's essentially what it is. And the reason, of course, that eels were so important is partly because they are very delicious. They were a really, really sort of, um, you know, from, and anyone could get them, right? So from kings to peasants, everybody loved eels, and theoretically, pretty much anyone could get them. You were never that far from an eel source mm-hmm. in England, right? Um, but that's definitely, that was a really important thing. Um, so just generally, they were delicious and well-loved and plentiful, until they were overfished much later, of course. Um, but in addition to that, on a fast day, <laughs> eels are fish, right? Eels count mm. as fish because they are obviously from the water, right? Um, so they do not count as meat. So that also okay. meant they're sort of all the more valuable for that reason, just because, um, they can be eaten any time. Right. Um, but this map is great, um, because you can sort of hover over, right. In 1086, <laughs> um, there's a manor that owes 4,000 eels to the Abbot of Crowland. Oh, wow. This is obviously in the Domesday book. Doomsday book. Yeah. Um, cause 1086, right? Um, yeah. 
So, um... Some of ooh. these are very large number of eels. Yes, Tunbridge. Right, like... In 1307, <laughs> they owe 15, 20 eels. Yeah, 1,520 eels to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah, this one is uh, 125,000 eels owed to the Bishop of Eli. Yep. In 1251. Yes. And it's I worth pointing out... I can't imagine having the patience to count that many eels. Right. Well, you <laughs> put them on sticks, so they're... It was actually kind of, it was a little bit of a form of currency, because you put, mm -hmm. like, however many on a stick, basically. Um, so a okay. stick of eels was worth a certain amount. Um, this is, this feels like one of those old-timey, I mean, it is one of those old-timey measurements, like a hogshead or a peck yeah. or something. Yeah, kind of. Um, but basically, yeah, so that, so, and, you know, the stick was sort of however long. <laughs> Um, and it would have, I don't know, like 10 eels on it or something. Um, that was kind of a specific number it usually would have. Mm -hmm. um, that's about about that. And um, they would usually be dried or something, right? If if you were going to give them all at once, they'd be dried. You wouldn't necessarily bring a barrel oh, of fresh okay. eels, right? Um, you know, they'd be dried or salted I mean or cured or something in some way. Um, so you'd, like, stack up the, the sticks of eels that would each have however oh, okay. many. Right. Um, but that being said, um, there is definitely, um, you know, there are some that are much smaller numbers. And in those cases, you know, you wonder, like, would some of them have been fresh? Were they, you know, mm -hmm. would they just ask to bring over some fresh eels, perhaps? Um, yeah. So there's a kind of um, interesting sense. But actually, you know, you can find pictures even of people today <laughs> um, of... Where they're holding a stick of eels, you know, and you can do this, I mean, Scandinavia, right, with fish as well, where they're holding a stick that just has, like, all of the little, you know, all of the cod uh, fillets or whatever hanging from it, clearly smoked or whatever, oh. you know, or locks, you know, would work the same way, basically. Um, you know what? I just looked this up and I realized that people used to sell dried squid this way in Vietnam. Like oh, yeah, of course. Right. Almost um, clothespin the dried squid, you know, like the top part mm -hmm. that's flat to a, a stick or something and, yep. you know, ride around on their bicycle and be like, look, dried squid. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a smell that you'll never forget. Aw. Okay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, there's a lot of vegetarian trauma there yes but probably delicious you know go for it probably Noms. if you like squid it's probably delicious yes um but yeah so you know let's say you know what if you had like a, a nice long stick that was you know what if you had like 25 eels per stick um that counts up real fast you know four sticks would be 100 and then right so okay. um yeah so you know so this would be sort of how, how you do those bigger numbers <laughs> um but there are definitely some some smaller ones, right? Um, here's Ode to the Kitchen at the Abbey of Abington. That's right, Ode to the Kitchen um, by Tercullus of Colum. Owes 500 eels. And it's so this is another reminder, of course, that the landholders, right? So the archbishop here or the abbey or whoever they are, um, that's going to them for their household, right? So this is, you might be like, obviously not one person isn't going to eat a thousand eels or even 500 eels. Right. But... Uh, the like 
hundred people in that household, you know, definitely. Right. Are. You got a lot of employees if you're uh, at the top of the food chain. Like yes. That. Yes. And this is actually another point. So <laughs> speaking of who gets what, um, there's some other sort of interesting aspects to that, which is um, essentially sumptuary laws, which, okay. of course, we associate with clothes, but in this case regarding food. Shouldn't they be consumptuary laws then? Yes. I'm sorry. Ha ha. I'm sorry. Ha ha. Yes. I love it. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so basically, um, there were, especially sort of in England, you know, but other places as well, as you move into the high Middle Ages and things become more available, right? Um, you got a middle class that's growing. And so suddenly, you know, people might want to keep their eels and pay you money instead, right? Because mm-hmm. they want to eat their eels or sell them to others for a higher price or who knows, right? So um, you do start getting uh, laws that are kind of about who can eat what, which also is another reminder, you know, we've all heard this stuff like you can't hunt on whoever's property, right? Like you can't hunt on the king's land or you can't hung, hunt on a nobleman's land. Right. But this goes even beyond that. So obviously f- fasting is a way to try and keep the rich from being too rich, <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess. Try, try to keep them from getting gout or whatever. But you also, sort of in the 1300s in England, you start to get laws. Um, there's like 1336, 1363, um, where you start saying, like, people of different ranks, what can they have? Um, so, for example, you know, um, below the aristocracy, certain ranks... Um, like below grooms, for example, or something like this. Um, maybe you can only have one meal a day of meat or fish with other items such as milk, cheese, and butter. Um, if you were someone who tended animals or threshed corn or were a dairy worker or something like that, um, you know, this was a way to try and keep you from eating the way the nobility ate. Hmm. So the nobility, the same way, you know, sumptuary laws about clothes are to keep you from wearing stuff that the nobility wears because they want to feel special about what they're doing, right? (laughs) Um, And so, like, you shouldn't eat more than one meal a day of meat or fish. But notice at this point in the 1300s in England, we're at, like, not just a, a day, like there might be a day when you eat meat, you know, or a day when you can't eat meat. Um, Now we're down to, like, just one meal. So it's expected almost that you're eating like meat or fish every day. Right. So you should only eat it like once a day (laughs) and your other meals should be like cheese and eggs and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and this is so crazy because I mean like the England has like a much more deeply ingrained class structure than uh, even today than the the U.S. does. Yes. And this just feels kind of like a a beginning to that, almost. Mm -hmm. But also, like, the idea that you could be sitting at home having, I don't know, bacon with your porridge, and somebody would 
find out about that and report you to the authorities. Yes. Like, it just, I realize that, you know, part of it is kitchens were probably more open to the outside and stuff like that, but it just feels so foreign mm-hmm. to the way that we live today, right? Like, right. I would be <laughs> entirely just, like, flabbergasted if anybody on my street knew what I had for breakfast in the morning. Yes. At all. Well, it's also, um, you gotta think, right, Marjorie, or, sorry, uh, Baxter, Margaret Baxter's, um, servant, you know, or whoever, (laughs) whoever, um, told out her here, that this is probably also, it might be the sort of thing that, like, Margaret Baxter keeps all the meat for herself all of the time, right? Um, and, you know, so it, Mm. and this is actually, this is a final side to this, where certain noblemen or noble people would become known for making sort of, you know, the really rich dishes that only they were really allowed to eat, and then sending them off to the poor and the sick. Oh, interesting. Right? Because, and that, of course, is a sort of public way to be like, I am allowed to do this, but I am not. I am abstaining, right? Because I am a good Catholic. I'm abstaining, and I'm doing good charity by sending, you know, these were considered to be nourishing, right? Really good Mm -hmm. nourishing dishes, because they are expensive, right? There's always a correlation somehow between what's good for you and what's expensive to this day obviously like whole foods is really expensive that's where you get organic food right (laughs) organic food is expensive it's good for you etc yeah um oh my goodness and of course the correlation doesn't have to be real but it is always there so but this is the point right i will eat the pesticide full apples i mean come on you wash them but whatever i will eat the pesticide full apples from whatever corner bodega and I will go to Whole Foods and buy all these apples and send them off to people who need them. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, the, the food kitchen or whatever. So this is a form of, um, you know, what would we call it? Like performative charity or something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it becomes a sort of thing that, that you can do. Right. Um, and so we go back again to like Chaucer's Prioress who famously, eats, you know, really rich foods and gives rich foods to her dogs. And sort of the point is not just that she's eating them as a prioress, but she's giving them to her dogs. She should be eating cheaper stuff and giving all this food to the poor. But, you know, she's not, right? <laughs> so, yeah. anyway. Um, but yeah, so, so this really interesting sense of as you start to move through the Middle Ages and people start to have more access to things, um, suddenly you start to get these laws that are like, wait, wait. No, not everyone can have this stuff. Um, <laughs> I can have this stuff. Um, so eels, everyone loves eels and everyone has access to them. You can't really stop that. Lampreys, that's another one. We mentioned them. Everyone loves lampreys. They are Didn't not you eels. you say there's a, a king who died of a surfeit of lampreys? Yeah, it's he probably didn't actually, of course. But <laughs> this oh. is the rumor. And his own... Um, sorry about the train. There we go. His own um, biographer actually wrote this up. <laughs> um, so it was it was a rumor at the time, but it's not it's unlikely to be true. He probably died of like, you know, what people it die was of. Henry the first. Henry the first, by the way. Yeah, Henry the first. Yeah. Um, and there's another rumor that the son of King Stephen, so this is gonna be a for a different time. We're gonna have an episode on Matildas, but um, 
Henry the First's daughter was supposed to take over. Big story. There are a lot of amazing Matildas involved in these stories. Um, one of them is the, the, you know, wife. <laughs> um, well, and then the, we get the mother of Henry the Second, um, who is determined to make him king and manages to because Stephen dies without an heir. Um, and, <laughs> uh, supposedly, although again, probably not. This is, and this okay. is maybe a later rumor, but supposedly King Stephen's son dies of a surfeit of eels. Okay. Um, which again is slightly different. Henry the first is lampreys, but yeah. Um, so anyhow, so then Henry the second gets the throne. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, the, but the Empress Matilda is Henry the first's daughter, um, who is supposed to be um, king, well, queen, <laughs> after him. Um, and there was sort of the big, big fight, and she, um, nowadays she tends to kind of be included in lists, um, as, you know, part of the succession sort of got kicked out a little bit. Um, but. But she wasn't for super long. Yeah. Um, that basically, but, you know, that Stephen succeeded her perhaps right mm -hmm. um essentially as opposed to before when she was just kind of omitted from the list unfairly very unfairly and she sticks around um and is a huge power because obviously she manages to make her kid who is henry the <laughs> second king um so yeah and he was kind of a big deal yes so he's extremely yeah. important um and as far as we can tell not you know no no eel or lamprey related deaths for him um but yeah, so eels and lampreys are both really important. Um, lampreys, we know because of recipes that they are important, but they are, they have no bones. And so there are, I think, three places where teeth or like a tooth of a lamprey have been found, mm -hmm. you know, buried in what would have been like the garbage, basically. Um, but that's the only way that they find archaeological evidence of lampreys, because lampreys completely disappear. Um, which is one of the yeah. things that, of course, made them such great food, because they don't mm -hmm. have any bones. Yeah, just the teeth. Um, they also look a little scarier than eels. It's nice to point out. Um, but there's some really interesting things. So um, the point, of course, of eel and lamprey, um, which sort of, again, anyone had access to, less so porpoises, not everyone had access to that. Um, but the point of these things was to create meals on their own, of course, but also sometimes to create meals that would um, substitute for meat, right, mm -hmm. on fish, so-called sort of fish fish days. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so there's some great recipes uh, that sort of discuss um, what to do. And a lot of these recipes... Um, you, because many of them also, you ha you can't use milk, right? Because you're supposed to be avoiding animal milk. And a lot of these recipes use almonds. So almond okay. milk, almonds, cheese <laughs> was a medieval thing long before oh, it was a modern hipstery thing. Okay. This is what they used in the Middle Ages to replace milk. Okay. So take that, dairy people who say that you can't call it milk 
the Middle Ages called it milk, <laughs> so you can call it milk. Uh, they didn't know about soybeans, so they're, I, I can't necessarily help you there, but, um, or cashews, I don't think. That's, that's not as, you know, almonds were available, is I think the point here. Yes. Um, but they really loved almonds, and they made, yeah, so almond milk and almond cheese <laughs> to go with these, you know, if you needed like a cream soup or stew, mm-hmm. um, you'd do it with almonds, basically. Yeah. Um, there are also some really funny things. So sometimes they'd make mock eggs because you couldn't have real eggs. Okay. On these days, right? Which could be made out of fish roe. Because remember, fish Those eggs wouldn't count as eggs. eggs. Yeah. Because they're fish, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so they don't count as like meat. They don't eggs. count the same way, right? <laughs> right. And fish roe are delicious as well. Oh, so good. But. I mean, of course, that's where we get caviar, <laughs> depending depending right. on what type of fish it, you know, technically, caviar is I would They call the ones on sushi um, tobiko, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the different sort of, depending on, yeah, what mm-hmm. the fish is. Um, but yeah, so basically, <laughs> um, there was also, a, so there was a mock egg that was made out of almonds, which is hilarious. Um, and... There's sort of this question, right? So meat is heating, it's luxurious, it's it, it's more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, eels and fish are not as expensive, you know, especially if you live somewhere like England, where you're probably by a river, right? Um, or not that far from the coast, ever. Um, but there's also questions, so like, why? It's not, you know, fish are less expensive, fine. But also, like, what makes them somehow less sinful than meat, right? Um, and it's not entirely clear in some ways. Water probably has something to do with it, right? The purity of water, sort of the purification of water. Um, there have also been theories that uh, because fish weren't killed in Noah's flood, obviously. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yes, that therefore fish, anything that lives in water is, like, blameless and... <laughs> it's fine. And okay, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but this also meant, okay, eel and lamprey, fine. We see how that that gets around mm-hmm. the thing. Um, almonds to almond milk and cheese, to this day, I think we can agree that's not dairy. <laughs> right. Um, but there are some other famous things, you know, and porpoise, like, yes, so obviously there are mammals that live in the sea, but mm-hmm. they don't count as meat because they swim in water. We can see the logic. We can see the logic, right? Sure. Then you start to get fishy. Pun possibly intended. <laughs> um, because um, there are some real issues then with people start to get tired, you know, eating fish all the time. You, you sort of have to eat it all the time. You might get start to get sick of it, right? Um, so what else doesn't count? So beaver tail, famously. Um, okay. Because it, it swims along in the water. It was very hard to argue about the beaver itself, because it's clearly so animal-like. But they spend so much time in water that there was this kind of discussion that beaver were, were not um, animals. Like, not meat. Um, and then barnacle geese. <laughs> what? Yeah, because barnacle geese to this day, I mean, that's where they get their name, is because it had been thought that they grew from barnacles. Wait, what's a barnacle? It's a goose. It's a type of goose. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a goose. But people just just thought they grew out of barnacles. Yes. 
And if they did, then that would mean that they're not <laughs> meat. <laughs> right? You see the logic. Sure. Yes. Yes. I, I do see that. Yes. I question why somebody would look at a barnacle and look at a goose and have any feeling that they were connected somehow. That's a whole other story. Um, okay. You know, the Greeks <laughs> had a lot of these interesting ideas. Um, okay. There's some other really, really fun ones, actually. Um, I mean, the spontaneous reproduction of eels, actually, is, is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, not spontaneous. I mean, spontaneous generation of eels. Sorry. Okay. Sort of out of the water or maybe out of the... Yeah. Um, but anyway... Yeah, so, but barnacle geese. So the idea that they were from barnacles, which meant they then were, that they weren't okay. meat. Um, so that was another okay. thing that you could eat <laughs> on a fish day, potentially. Um, yes, so here we are kind of getting around the... Um, Did they go with anything that feels a little more obvious, like frogs? Are those... Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, yes, absolutely. Right. And, and all, you know, and actual sea creatures as well. Like, if you lived in an area where you could get, like, either freshwater or sea, you know, mm-hmm. um, obviously things like if you're in the Mediterranean, uh, which would be like Italy, Greece, et cetera, right? Obviously, sort of squid, things like that, um, or clams and mussels and oysters, you know, yeah, all these things absolutely count. Um, but then you also have this really interesting sense so one of the other things the Norman invasion does, of course, um, is th- there's a question. How much did it really change the eating habits of the English? They obviously already loved eels. Mm-hmm. Everyone loves eels. Everyone continued to love eels. So that was not a change. Um, they may have started to eat more pork. It's not clear. Um, mm-hmm. It's also possible that just we find more archaeological evidence afterwards. Who is to say? Um but one thing that happens, of course, that we know is the, the language changes, right? Which is why we call beef. <laughs> Both. Yeah. That's why we eat beef, even right. though we have cows. Mm-hmm. Um, and bulls and, you know, all sorts of things <laughs> that aren't. And yeah. why we have words like mutton. poultry. Yeah. Poultry, mutton. Pork. Yes. Yeah. We do see we eat all chicken, but we also French say it's words. poultry. Yeah, yes. exactly. So this is something that happens. Um, that's really, yeah, that's really sort of important to English cuisine. And um, French preparations also show up in England, but England messes around with them sometimes. So gelatin, mm-hmm. which we all know, right? Originally, it's the sort of s- stuff from animals that, you know, and then it sets and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It comes from <laughs> I mean, um, hooves, I believe. Yeah, although it can also come from, like, cartilage and, you know, Yeah, whatever. they do make Cook fish gelatin. Yes, and so this but... is something else you'd do if you needed to make a dish. So there are a lot of fish dishes with gelatin that you would make where they use, like, the uh, swim bladder, the hmm. air bladder from a fish. Okay. Yeah, apparently it's sure. got sort of the fishy equivalent of gelatin. Yeah. Um, and so you'd use that instead, right? So substitute, um, for animal gelatin if you need to thicken your thing. Yeah. Okay. There's also the fact that England also uses the word, uh, galantine for a lot of things that have nothing to do with gelatin. They end up using it for kind of like vinegary sauce. Okay. For some weird reason. Unclear. Hmm. 
Um, but anyhow, <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, so they, um, they import French words, possibly some French cuisine, certainly eventually. I mean, these things mix yeah. and match. Um, but the actual sort of the, the cooking habits and the eating habits may have changed a little more slowly, but also they were clearly kind of close together already. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, England and France aren't that far apart. <laughs> so, and sure. you already had like the Saxons, you know, you already had all these kind of invasions of people from elsewhere bringing a lot of this stuff over. So, um, but there, but there are definitely some sort of subtle changes, um, in, in the words and sort of some of the things that happen. Um, but yeah, so you have, um, yeah, fishy equivalents for everything. So gelatin is sort of the, one of the final things that you, you get little fishy equivalents for. Worth pointing out as well. Oh, also, by the way, Christopher Monk has a great article on gelatin slash galantine and all of this online that we will post to. Um, but yeah, so I want to say one of the final things um, we should point out is that eels remained popular in England way past the time they were overfished. <laughs> and... Eventually, English start paying other parts of Europe to import fish. And this becomes particularly true of the Dutch. The Dutch start importing fish to England in eel ships. Um, and there's a reconstructed eel ship um, wow. that sailed to London, um, I think, like fall 2019. So oh, right before <laughs> everything closed down, um, they sailed it to London and... Um, with just a few eels. I think they didn't bring a lot of eels, in fact. But um, but it's a reconstructed ship, and they did bring some eels. And basically, an eel ship, the hold was meant to be flooded with water. Seawater, right? So they would be sea eels. <laughs> um, and it was meant to be flooded with water so that um, you have... Hmm. So the eels were alive for the passage. Um, That's and- interesting. Usually having water inside your boat is something you <laughs> are trying to avoid. <laughs> Yes. Unless you are... Indeed. I don't know. In a lot of trouble, I guess. I can't think of a situation where it would be good. Yes. Um, and generally speaking, it is not. This is the, clearly the one kind of case when it is recommended. Oh, I got um, one. If you traveled back in time to rescue two humpback whales to come forward in time and talk to an alien satellite, then you want water inside of your ship. But Yes. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yes. Other than that. Right. Right. Those are the only cases, yes. Um, but yes, so that is the kind of hilarious, um, you know, this is how much eels were sort of prized, right? Um, and England occasionally, you know, we, they just are Brexiting right now, um, have Brexited, <laughs> I guess. They did occasional tariffs or, you know, essential Brexit, you know. They had, there were some medieval and early modern Brexits that they kind of did, where they'd like cut off trade and they'd be like, no, you know, blah, 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 tariffs, blah, blah, buy, buy English, etc. And this would then result in the Dutch not being able to import eels, which would result in like England not getting their eels and a lot of upset people. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, okay. But yeah, anyway, so there's a re- rebuilt eel ship that, that sailed in and... Yes, I, I don't know if I can pronounce the name correctly, but um, the Korneliski Yeeks, the second, um, because the first mm-hmm. one was the last eel ship to go to London, um, I think before before World War II or early 20th century. 
um, was the oh, last wow. time that that an, a real eel ship had actually made the made the journey. Um, yeah, and so there you go. So eels are still still a thing. Um, oh, and something else that the surprised eel historian has pointed out on his Twitter thread um, that there's some early modern engravings of London that show eel ships in the Thames. They're actually labeled as eel ships. Um, and the, the oh, funny thing is that the famous one um, by Kleist Vischer, <laughs> um, he'd, he's Dutch and had never probably been to London, and his engraving, where he labels proudly the eel ships, which would have been Dutch, presumably, right? So mm-hmm. as a Dutch engraver, he is proudly labeling the, e- the, eagle, the eel ships in the Thames, right? So these eel ships that are presumably Dutch. But he's probably never, he probably never went to London. Um, and his, his engraving is probably based on his publisher had been to London and worked there for a while. Um, that's Jocatus Hondius. Uh, but the publisher's brother-in-law, so Hondius's brother-in-law, um, had lived and worked in London a lot. Uh, Peter Vandenkeer. And he actually engraved a drawing of London um, that I, that he'd engraved someone else's drawing of London. Okay. Um, John Norden's drawing of London. That is sort of um, anyway. So and Norden was in fact a English <laughs> um, cartographer, I guess, um, who did these things. And um, but his but his drawing. So John Norton, who was English, his drawing was engraved by this Dutch engraver, Flemish engraver. And it is possible that this, that that engraver sort of, um, helped, <laughs> um, this feels Vischer very peripheral. Like, yeah, map. I'm anyway. surprised that, you know, the map didn't come out with like bears running up and down all of the buildings or, you know. Yes. Crazy. Well, right, flying, there's close periphery you know. sort of to people who had lived and worked there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the sort of um the the closeness um to Peter Vandenkeer is is very suggestive as to where Vischer's version came from. Um but um there are a few inconsistencies in it, <laughs> nonetheless. Um but it's it's very impressive and gets copied a lot thereafter or republished a lot thereafter, actually. Um, so it continues to sort of influence depictions of London, um, which makes it very interesting because he had specifically sort of drawn in and labeled these eel ships. Yeah. Cool. But that's all early modern. That's like the early 1600s. Mm-hmm. Um, so just the sense of like how long eels continued to matter, basically. Ah. <laughs> Because, you know, this is long after Catholicism, so we're into Protestantism. Um, not long after, but England at this point is Protestant, it right? Caught but on. they yeah. still love eels, right? So eels, lampreys, um, a lot of these fish, they are, they are important because of sort of fish days, so-called, right? These sort of mm-hmm. fast days. But they're definitely not exclusively important for that reason. Like, they're a genuinely beloved dish. Um, right. And the fact that, of course, they've been eaten so recently 
makes it all the more interesting that they've kind of disappeared or that we just don't think of them as being mm-hmm. um a British food. <laughs> right. Um yeah. Which is sort of sad. But yes, eels are awesome. So there we are. Cool. Exciting. Yes. Uh, I would just like to mention a couple other things, which is, if you are medieval, you cook your fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And you oh, dye okay. your food. That's D-Y-E. Yeah. Um, so, like, sandalwood for red, saffron for yellow, boiled blood for okay. black. There's a lot of blood used. Um, and so a lot of these dishes, it'll be like, you want to serve it in different colors. So you want to make like okay. half your fish stew in one pot, and then you want to pour. You want to make your fish stew, and then you want to pour out some of it into a different pot, and color both pots, and then put it together so that you know pour it carefully onto the plate, so that like it meets, oh. so that it's like multicolored stuff like that. Oh my god! Or you do it with your That's jellies, so, obviously. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Jello. I mean, we all know it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they didn't do it to do it with Jello. Like they did it with a lot of with like. Porridges, okay. yeah, anything, anything that was thick enough that it wouldn't immediately like run together. Yeah, sure. Okay, um, they were very interested in colorful food. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm pretty sure that I've gotten you know packages of of frozen berries reminding me that I should be eating all different colors of fruits and vegetables or something. So we still right. care a lot about that. And- mm-hmm. Wasn't yep. there a meme, like a trend, where people were disguising regular household objects as cakes and stuff? Oh, yeah. No, I have it backwards. Like, they were making cakes that looked that like looked household like- objects. Yes. So, yes. you know, we can argue that people still care a lot about what their food looks like. Oh, yeah. Well, this in, is a whole other thing. Know. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you would, like, you would make your fish gelatin... Or fish in gelatin, or whatever. And then he would put it in a mold. You know, this is probably sort of mashed up fish that's been <laughs> gelled. Um, right, like a gefilte fish. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, you put it in a fish mold. So it comes out looking like a fish. Okay. What? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you do this with all sorts of stuff, right? People make fun of, like, the McRib. But it's no different <laughs> from what people have been doing for, like... Thousands of years, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you mold, sometimes you mold things to look like other things, because that's funny, mm-hmm. right? People absolutely do that onto the internet all the time, right? Here's a dessert that looks like a mushroom, but really it's a chocolate cake or whatever. Um, yeah, absolutely, right? <laughs> okay. Um, or, you know, vice versa. It could be like a um, chocolate Something that looks like a chocolate cake that's really made up of mushrooms. You know, anyway, people, yes, people love to do that now. They love to do it then. Um, yeah. And color, of course, right? You want to cut open your food and we love it, right? Cakes or bagels or whatever. Like you open them and suddenly there's something colorful inside and you're like, yay! How exciting. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you're right. I mean, we should be eating many colored foods, but of course, if you're in the middle of Lent and you are mostly eating fish, it's probably all white. <laughs> like, yeah, get a lot of whitefish. So no wonder you you want to dye it different colors, right? Um, mm-hmm. Plus spices, right? Like cinnamon <laughs> was a mm-hmm. favorite in the Middle Ages, not surprisingly, and it definitely turns things like reddish brown, right? Um, yeah, I mean, so spices can also it tastes good, and it makes your food look not pasty. 
All right. Both both excellent things. That's kind of cool. Yes. That's kind of cool. I feel like the picture that you have of people in the Middle Ages eating, you know, porridge that right. is <laughs> kind of bland and, you know, they're sitting in a field of mud because they're... <laughs> right. This is Monty Python. But in reality, putting mud they're on sitting top of in mud. a field. Yes. Yeah. In reality, there's eels in the field. Yep. And uh, everybody's happy. Yes. Yeah. And there are many cool. more things to eat than, yeah, we thought. Yeah. Blackadder makes one of the turnips. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. It's not to say that these things weren't a problem or that if you were very poor, that, you know, you might not be eating a lot of bread and turnips. Mm-hmm. But particularly um, as we move through, as we start to move through the, into the sort of high middle ages, um, there's a lot of sort of stuff around, right? If you are poor enough, you go to an abbey to get food, you're going to get more than bread and turnips, you know? Um, you're going to get what they consider to be not very good, but mm-hmm. it's going to be the leftovers of what was pretty rich food, probably. There you go. You know, Although some people were known to be stingy. I mean, so it, it did depend, mm-hmm. of course. But yeah. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. That was pretty cool. Eels were both money and a delicious, um, well, let's just call it a delicious currency. Yes. They still could um, be. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean... Check your eels first to make sure that they're not endangered, but then enjoy them. Yes. Um, announcements. We're on Twitter, at Ask a Medievalist, and we are on Facebook, also at Ask a Medievalist, and we have a website, which is askamedievalist.com. You can listen to old episodes there that might not be on our RSS feed anymore. You can... Uh, ask us questions through the form and or you could send us an email at questions at com. I think that's all the announcements. Rate it and review us on Apple Podcasts or just uh, think of a friend who might be interested in eels and send us to them. And have a great time, get vaccinated and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 